Hi, welcome to the First Trust ROI podcast. I'm Ryan Isakainen, ETF strategist here at First Trust. Well, for those of you who have wondered where some of the best ideas at First Trust in terms of product development come from, uh, I am very pleased to be joined by Scott Frisky for today's episode. Scott leads the team that's responsible for developing investment products at First Trust. Uh, Today, we're going to talk about what the process looks like. Where do we get our best ideas from? How does the the product line evolve over time? And and why have we been single-minded in providing solutions for financial professionals? Uh, Thanks for joining us, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Today, I'm joined by Scott Frisky, Head of Product Development at First Trust. Scott, thanks for joining us on the ROI Podcast. Thanks for having me, Ryan. Great to be here. So, Scott, the most obvious question that I have for you is... You're in charge of, of uh, leading the team that develops some of the products, whether it's ETFs or unit investment trusts or a variety of different product lines. And First Trust is known as having really innovative ideas. So my first question for you is, where do most of those ideas come from? Nobody in this industry has a crystal ball. Okay. Uh, nobody can predict uh, where the market's going exactly. Uh, it's really difficult to make long-term decisions from a product perspective, from a business strategy perspective. At least that's uh, what I've experienced in in my uh, time in financial services. Um, and, and what I have also experienced is that uh, if you know who your customer is and you spend your time asking them questions about where you can matter to them, mm-hmm. how you can help them... Uh, the answers become a lot more clear. Okay. And so for us, that's financial advisors. That's where we spend all of our time. Uh, we have a large team uh, on, the product, on the product side. They're supported by uh, a huge research group and, and a huge capital markets group. Um, we work together with the entire firm, with our, with our sales force, with our economics teams, um, all focused on finding out what can we do that adds value to the advisory ecosystem? And that's where we spend our time, and that's where those those uh, ideas come from. So it's this collaborative process. Um, so as you think about products that we've launched over the last few years that have come as a result of some of, of some of the demand coming from the field, um, you know, first off, talking about some success stories, what, what have you been, you know, kind of with the benefit of hindsight, you look back and say, oh man, it was a great idea that we chose to launch this type of product. Yeah. For us, I would start probably by saying actively managed fixed income. Okay. In 2012, we were, we were early in active ETFs. The first active ETF was launched in 2008. Uh, and it was difficult to get the exemptive relief. We were fortunate uh, that it was the relief from the regulators to be able to launch uh, any asset class in an active ETF. Uh, and so we were forward thinking in uh, obtaining the flexibility to mm-hmm. be able to do that. And then we wanted to differentiate and there weren't many firms launching active ETFs, uh, firms that were known for active management and fixed income, uh, largely uh, weren't in the space. So it gave us an opportunity to bring um, some unique strategies that were differentiated in a, in a very efficient wrapper that our whole firm was focused on. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we have um, been in the ETF space, as you know, obviously since 2005. Yeah. Uh, but that kind of focus allowed us to, to spend our time figuring out what fit the ETF wrapper really well. So I'm very thankful that we did that. And then in... Uh, so wait, Bef- before you go on to the... I know we've got some other thoughts... 
But um, as you think about actively managed fixed income, you know, you kind of survey what is in the lineup today. Some funds are sub-advised, some funds are managed in-house. Why have we chosen to do both? Yeah, we look for the best strategy and we have an open architecture platform where we're par- we'll partner with third-party sub-advisors that are unaffiliated uh, where we feel like they have a great discipline that complements anything we may be able to do in-house because we want to bring the best product to the advisor, to a platform mm-hmm. that we possibly can. Uh, and if that means that we hire a sub-advisor and partner with them, that's great. If, if it's something that we have the capability internally or we have the capability to bring internally, uh, that's great as well, but, but it's really focused on uh, what's the best fit and who's the best firm mm-hmm. to manage. So it's, it's really, again, looking for expertise, right? And yeah. if we've got the expertise, then the, you know, the qualifications to manage in a specific asset class, then, then great. But if we don't, you're not afraid to go outside the firm. Yeah, we can't be all things to all people. And right. we don't try to be. We don't have a corner on the truth. There's no way you can possibly be the best at everything. Uh, it's a lot more likely if you have the ability to reach your target market mm-hmm. through distribution uh, that you can find other people that have been focused on a craft for a very long time and partner with them. Okay. And they're good at what they're good at and we're good at what we're good at. And when you put them together, one plus one equals more than two. Okay. So um, in addition to actively managed fixed income, what else have you kind of, again, looking back with the benefit of hindsight now, you say, well, boy, that was a, a really good decision. Definitely the option space. Okay. Uh, 2019, we launched our first uh, target outcome ETFs and UITs. Those are products that, that give you exposure to, to U.S. equities or different types of uh, index strategies with uh, participation on the upside and protection on the downside. Uh, and that's uh, strategies have existed in structured notes and in uh, the annuity space that, that do that for a long time. But the innovation there was was partnering with a firm called Cbovest, who's an affiliate of ours now. Mm-hmm. We're really glad we did that because you know who knew COVID was coming, and we had that product line ready and available. It was amazing timing. It was, yeah. So there, there's all sorts of stories within the story I could tell you about. Um, you know, providential uh, opportunities that we had. Um, good timing, you know, that was, you can call that luck. You can call that just working really hard every day. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to go back to the, um, proximity to our clients. We just stay close to the client, uh, cause markets change and, you know, the term unprecedented was used a lot in the last three, four years. And the challenges that the advisors have in navigating the, the problems and the opportunities their clients have, right. helping them achieve their goals. Sure. It was unprecedented. So for us, it's just have your ears open and uh, work really hard to, to try to figure out what's next. One of the things that's kind of been, um, I'd say it's built into the DNA of First Trust, is that the distribution effort has really focused on the financial professional as opposed to the retail investor. Uh, why do you think that's such an important part of what we're trying to do at First Trust? We serve about 1,000, I'm sorry, 100,000 financial advisors today. And those 100,000 financial advisors have tens of millions of clients. And there's no way that we can know what's best for each one of those end clients. That advisor, uh, they understand that client. They understand what's unique about each one of their clients. And our job is to support them and helping them uh, work with their clients to achieve their goals. And so 
uh, it's focusing on your target audience, your target market, your target client, which for us is, is the intermediary. It could be a family office, could be an advisor, could be a broker dealer. Uh, any type of steward is, is where we're focused. You know, one of the things that some people sometimes fail to understand is that the intermediator, the intermediary, the, the financial professional is really critical in helping that investor actually stay disciplined and reach their goals and really understand this, this you know, variety of different product lines, ETFs that are, you know, that, that maybe have buffered downside or are actively managed. If, if they're going to use those as, as the ingredients to build a portfolio, there's a lot of work that goes into that, right? And, and you know, financial professionals are, are better equipped to do that than, than, you know, the retail investor sitting at home. Yeah, we're big believers in the value that advisors provide. And our, our CEO, Jim Bowen, uh, has this phrase that he coined, and it's First Trust exists to serve the stewards of the wealth of the most productive people on earth. And that word steward and our operative word service, we serve the stewards because the stewards are the ones that craft the individual plan for the individual client and walk that family through decades, in some cases, generations of wealth creation, wealth management, in some cases, just trying to figure out how they can retire mm-hmm. and live off their savings. Maybe they have a pension, maybe they don't. There's so many issues that the, the American citizen faces that a financial advisor can help them prepare for and plan for. It's like fail to plan, plan to fail, right? And, and that's what the advisor community does. And we're, we're inspired by that, and that's why we've organized ourselves around uh, building our products in support of that ecosystem. COVID, if, if that is not the, the prime example that's still kind of visceral in everyone's, you know, every, everyone's life uh, of the, the value of that financial professional saying, no, this is, you know, we set up this strategy, we have these investments, and we're going to stay committed to that even when it seems like everything is falling apart. And, you know, it's amazing how important that is because those people that sold, those people that decided to jump ship, I would suggest that many of them failed to get back in at the right time. So uh, I I think that is, uh, that's, you know, I'm thankful as someone who's been at First Trust for some time that that is our approach because I think it is in the best interest of the end client. It is. The financial advisory profession wouldn't exist if, if there weren't uh, ultra high net worth people all the way down to someone who's just trying to scrape enough together to retire and, and live a decent retirement that needed help. They, don't, they do not trust themselves mm-hmm. with their own financial decisions. Mm-hmm. So they outsource it. It's kind of like any other uh, professional service. I'm not going to diagnose my my ailment. I'm going to go right. to a professional. So it's well, you similar. may go on, you know, Google and start googling and symptoms. Scare yourself but, to death. Yeah. But generally, that doesn't work out well. <laughs> yeah. um, okay, so we've talked about, you know, these are some of the things that we've we're, we're thankful that that you know the First Trust made the decision to launch certain product lines. Um, thinking about, you know, what's next, what's what's coming down the road. You know, we, we're we're preparing for the next decade and beyond. What are some of the areas that you're most excited about in terms of product development? Um, you know, maybe maybe start off with ETFs, but but I'm also curious about other different types of investment products. Yeah, ETFs. There, there's going to be a whole wave of additional innovation there. Uh, there's there's a little over 3,300 ETFs in the U.S. market today. There's over 8,000 mutual funds. Hmm. 
And there's over 25,000 different share classes of those 8,000 mutual funds. So if you compare the choices available in the traditional kind of legacy wrapper, there's 56 million households that own a mutual fund. There's only 7 million that own an ETF. So as the ETF continues to expand in, in the, way, the ways that it's used, uh, I'm excited by and inspired by just what we've seen happen over the last couple decades. Uh, the mutual fund's been around for about two and a half times the amount of time as, as ETFs have. Uh, so there's there's going to be a lot of innovation there, um, I think, in, in many ways. But uh, the ability to utilize some of the newer investment solutions that, that are gaining popularity, such as direct indexing, mm. the ability to customize, there's a lot of opportunity there uh, ahead. So I wanted to ask you a little bit more about direct indexing because this is, you know, it's one of these trends that over the last several years uh, we've heard more and more about. Uh, you know, from I remember there were conferences, one of the big ETF conferences in Florida. I think you were at back in 2017 or 2018. The big theme was, uh, you know, direct indexing is going to come in, it's going to take over, and um, and you know, there's been a mixed level of success, but there's still a lot of reasons to be excited. So. Um, you talked a little bit about it, but I want you to expand on what makes this such a compelling story, and who does it um, who does it really seem most appropriate for? There, there's a number of benefits to direct indexing uh, as an option uh, for certain types of clients for for an advisor. One of them is uh, the ability to customize. So it's it's an individual account. This is done through a separately managed account. So an advisor can customize. It may be based on their values. It may be based on an investment uh, policy statement that they have, a certain type of uh, return they're trying to generate or risk they're trying to uh, mitigate. Um, you can customize all of that in a managed account. And that's what I would call full service direct indexing, uh, where you're not just providing exposure to benchmark A through Z. So you're customizing that. And, you know, I, that makes me think immediately of, uh, you know, some of the ESG policies that in individual investors, maybe institutions may have. Um, one of the challenges of ESG, you know, environmental social governance is those mean different things to different people. And they may have certain values that they want to put in those portfolios that someone who's another investor has different values. So direct indexing helps to solve that problem? It does. Yeah. You can individualize a portfolio based on each investor's values. And, and we have clients who, uh, two members of the same household have slightly different portfolios mm. uh, in their values-based portfolios. Uh, the ability to, to customize mandates for institutions uh, across the spectrum um, of how they want to uh, invest alongside a, a certain set of values. Uh, there's a lot of opportunity to take uh, the technology that you have with direct indexing, the, the way you can screen portfolios, and, uh, and deliver um, something that's customized for each end user. And the, the whole ESG thing, you're absolutely right. Uh, ESG products are very challenging uh, because so, something that means something different to everybody. And mm -hmm. by the way, who came up with the definition of ESG? Right. Uh, is it? Uh, I, I don't know the answer to that question. I don't know that anybody really could give you one. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so in, in addition to the customization of the portfolio, there's some other features. Um, sometimes I hear about you know certain features that allow you to have some um, some benefits from a tax standpoint. How, how does that typically work with a direct indexing account? Yeah, because you own the individual securities directly in the separate account. Uh, to the extent that the 
direct indexing technology is always looking for losses to harvest while mm-hmm. tracking to your benchmark. When you set up an account, you basically say, I'm, I'm going to limit the tracking error to my reference benchmark. Let's mm-hmm. say it's the S&P 500 or the Russell 1000 to a certain percentage. And that's largely based on my risk tolerance. If I'm a more aggressive investor, I might be okay with more tracking error. And what the tracking error allows you to do is harvest losses in individual securities and replace them with like-kind securities from that benchmark, and you're generating what we refer to as tax alpha, and that's tax losses that you can set uh, offset against future gains and improve your after-tax returns. So you're talking about maybe selling uh, one stock from a certain industry and buying a different stock from the same industry, or, or at least one that has a high degree of correlation with that stock that you sold. Is that is that about right? That's right. Yeah. yeah. A, a, you know, Caterpillar and John Deere are two popular examples, Coke and Pepsi. And, and uh, really what the technology does is it looks at the individual risk characteristics of each company, and it tries to find the next closest match to the individual risk characteristics of that uh, company that you're going to use as a replacement. You know, another topic that has been a lot in the press recently, there's been some some lawsuits and things uh, has to do with cryptocurrency. Um, there's There's been several firms that have filed for Bitcoin ETFs or other cryptocurrency ETFs. Um, in, in the past, First Trust has, um, has also filed for certain products. Is it a good idea to have these products? And where where is First Trust at in that product development? Yeah, where there's regulatory clarity, there's a need for these products in the marketplace. There's okay. no question about that. Advisors need help understanding what is and is not a tangibly valuable crypto asset, mm-hmm. a digital asset. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's a scam? What's not? Uh, they have clients asking them those questions. They're not equipped with the resources to answer them in most cases. And so the conversations we've had with advisors are around, hey, we would love it if you could provide education, Mm. if you could provide advice on allocation, uh, and then the instruments with which to do so. So our our firm has spent a lot of time and energy, uh, perhaps not as much as as a few others, but uh, evaluating that space and, and... Per our conversation earlier uh, around partnerships, it's likely that we would be doing that with a partner. I want to make sure I don't leave out UITs. First Trust was built upon this UIT business or unit investment trust business. Um, Through the years, there's been tremendous innovation there. And uh, I'm I'm curious, same question with, you know, that I had for ETFs. What are you most excited about in some of the innovation in the UIT space? Yeah, the UIT wrapper has been around a long, long time. Uh, a lot longer than the ETF. And in fact, uh, two, I think, of the largest ETFs in the market are UITs. That's a very little-known sort of fact. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I always use that as an example of the the breadth of utility that that the unit investment trust structure has. Uh, It's also, for certain types of advisors, it's a business model. It's, they don't charge an advisory fee. They get paid uh, a commission. And the industry uh, looks at that kind of the same way they look at maybe an A-share mutual fund or something like that, where we don't think that's a fair comparison because uh, UITs are rules-based, they're transparent. Uh, Every time they mature, the advisor gets to have a conversation with the client about that allocation. Mm -hmm. Do we want to reinvest with Mm -hmm. the same allocation? Do we want to reposition? Do we want to take more risk, less risk? Are we generating enough income from these investments? Where are interest rates at? Should we just park it in cash? Should we do something different? There's a level of engagement 
that the UIT structure enables the advisors to have with their clients uh, and really focus on um, positioning the assets appropriately for each uh, environment that we're in. That's a great overview of you know some of the some of the differences and sort of advantages of that UIT structure it's it is amazing that you know first trust has become a leader in that space and it's been around for a long time and um, there's really you know the, the the competitor the list of competitors is not quite as long as maybe I would expect it to be given some of the success that we've had in the UIT space um, okay Scott I uh, have made it a habit of asking some of the guests on the podcast uh, Excuse me for reading recommendations. I'm always looking for uh, you know ideas of, of books to read. Um, thinking about you know the the Scott Frisky reading list. Uh, are there any books that you're reading or have recently read that you would recommend? Three books come to mind. Uh, one of them is is a book called The Leadership Bookshelf. Okay, and this is a book that highlights 50 books that other leaders have read and recommend. Mm-hmm. And so if you're looking, one of the things that I, I think is really hard. Uh, especially for younger people um, who haven't lived through history, as much history, is what do I read? That book, uh, for me, was a great guide to what other leaders, and these are generals, they're admirals of the Navy, they're uh, public figures, they're people who have been successful, who uh, the author of this book uh, interviews, and he interviews the, the, the person who recommended the book and why they recommended it. He gives an overview of the author and then gives a brief overview of the book, and so that was a great guide. Then the other two are uh, Ego is the Enemy by Ryan Holiday. Okay. And it is just such a great book because we all have an ego and we ought to discipline it daily. Yeah. Uh, and it, it's a great guide. Um, and he's kind of a stoic. He's written a number of books now. Um, he lives near Austin, Texas, where I live. Okay. Uh, so I'm, I'm a big fan of his and his writing. And then the third one is uh, The Hard Thing About Hard Things. Hmm. And that's written by Ben Horowitz of Andres and Horowitz. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's about how hard it is to build a business. And he tells some kind of war stories about uh, what it was like when when he um, was kind of coming up through the ranks as a CEO and as a founder and how he cut his teeth and a lot of really hard lessons he learned about how to deal with people of, of all kinds of um, different circumstances. It's just a really good book that it kind of gives you an in-your-face exposure to how hard it is to start, run, and succeed in business. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, okay, my final question. Um, as you think about some of the trends that are happening in our industry, we look at the economy, you know, First Trust's economic team thinks there's likely a recession coming. Um, there's a lot of, I don't know, a, a lot of reasons why people look at the landscape and they're negative and they're kind of a little pessimistic. Um, so my question for you is, what are you optimistic about? I mean, you, you look around at the world around you, um, I think it's it's important to have things that you're optimistic about. So I'm curious, Scott, what are you optimistic about? That's a good question. I'm I'm not an economist. I'm not a uh, right. a markets person. Um, but I think living in America, where we have freedom, we have religious freedom, we have political freedom, we have freedom of speech, we have all sorts of freedoms here. Uh, combined with the American spirit that the hard work and the work ethic that uh, you see so many people apply every single day and the companies on the venture side that, that we see uh, that, that we get uh, looks at to invest in you know early stages and, and the amount of innovation that's happening mm-hmm. in our country, um, partly because of the intellectual property rights we have here. And if you build it, no one's going to take it from you mm-hmm. uh, like exists in some other countries. But 
uh, I'm just generally an optimistic person. And so I, I look at uh, difficulty as an opportunity. So mm-hmm. if we're going to go into uh, an economic headwind, uh, financial services is going to really lean on the services aspect. Who's going to be there uh, for those that need the help the most? And, and from a kind of a, a business perspective, I, I think um, we're not uh, inviting difficulty, mm-hmm. but when it comes, we, we are eager to, to be the first call for, for our clients and to be there to support them when, when it gets the toughest. Great answer. Um, Scott, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We'll have to do this again sometime down the road, uh, but I really appreciate you. Appreciate the work your team does as well. Uh, and I appreciate all of you. Thanks for joining us on the ROI podcast. Have a great day.